You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. Good morning. Um, I'm going to be reading our scripture reading for the day, which comes from Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your ser- oh, that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, From there, I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again together one more time. So Lord, we've publicly just said together that in this moment we want to seek you. And we seek you in this moment by recognizing you are not silent. You're not a God who's far away, unconcerned with our lives or our world, our church. You're a God who is involved, and you're a God who speaks. And we just heard your very words spoken over us. And so as an act of seeking you, God, we just open up our lives. We open up our mind to receive from you. Would you now, through your inspired word, under the power of your spirit that's in this room, Speak to us. Speak to every last person in this room. Lord, I have some, I think, fairly straightforward things to speak about this morning. I have some complex things that a lot of us wrestle with as we think about our connections to our forefathers and what to do with that. I just pray that you would empty me out right now and just make me a vessel. Use me. Speak through me. Help me where I'm weak, and may your word clearly come forward to your people in this room. Lord, before we jump in, I just pray for those in this room right now that have spent a little time far away from you. Maybe this is their first time back in a church building in a little while. Um, and maybe, maybe they're just recognized they are, they are a long way off from you. I pray that that reality that you are not far from any of us would be felt this morning. God, I pray that they would see 
that there is a wide open door to come back home to you through the sacrifice that Jesus has made this morning. Speak to us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what we have before us this morning is a recorded prayer. It's Nehemiah's prayer in Nehemiah chapter 1. And uh, what is prayer? Prayer, simply put, is communication with God. Prayer is the act in which we communicate with the God who made us. And as simple as that sounds, I think all of us recognize that prayer is not simple or easy. As simple as it is, prayer is just communicating with God. All of us, to some measure, struggle with that. I can remember early as a believer hearing about some people's prayer lives and just being amazed. I mean, it was as though they were just having this kind of sit down conversation over coffee with God. And I would try to pray. And, and maybe, you know, you have this experience yourself of trying to pray, but immediately my mind is wandering off to something else. Uh, or trying to pray, but it's like this awkward date where I don't know what to say or where to go with it. I'm just trying to find the words, trying to get engaged, and it's not there. Many of us have that experience in this uh, reality of prayer. Well, God recognizes that we struggle to pray. God recognizes that we don't always pray as we should, just like his, Jesus' disciples did in his day. And so what God has actually left us, friends, with are roadmaps or guides that help us with our communication with God. What are those roadmaps and guides? Those roadmaps are the recorded prayers that we have in our Bible. Uh, the prayers that are recorded in the Bible are not just there for us to say, wow, Nehemiah, you were an eloquent prayer. Good for you, man. Nice prayer. That's, that's not why they're there. The, the prayers recorded in our Bible are given to us so that we could have language and guides to help us in our communication with God. And he's left us with prayers for all kinds of different seasons that we go through in life. If you're looking for just a general prayer for sort of like any ordinary day, look at the Lord's Prayer. If you're wondering, how, how should I pray for the church? Maybe you could look over at one of Paul's prayers in, for example, Ephesians chapter 3. If you're in a place of desperation in your life, you could look at Jonah's prayer in Jonah chapter 2. If you're in a place of depression, feeling low, and like there is no lifting of your soul, you could turn to Psalm 88 to express the darkness that you feel in the midst of depression. There's all kinds of prayers for all kinds of circumstances in our life because God wants us to seek him and he's given us these roadmaps to do so. What then is this prayer that we find in Nehemiah 1? What season or circumstances does Nehemiah pray towards that would help us? Well, this prayer that we've just had read over us is a prayer when it's time to start over when it's time to rebuild, when it's time to regroup, when it's time to turn back to God, Nehemiah's prayer is very relevant for us. And then when we are in our own season of sort of coming out of COVID, many of us rethinking our lives, uh, you know, re rethinking how we want to live, how we want to relate to God, Nehemiah's prayer is a great path or guide 
to help us do just that. And so as we consider this prayer this morning, I struggled in preparing for it. And the Lord actually gave me an extra week because we got kicked out of church last week uh, to, to, to prepare for this. There's so many things that I could focus on in Nehemiah's prayer. I could talk about 20 different things that he prays in this passage. What I want to do is really focus on three of them, three expressions, if you will, or three things that Nehemiah gives voice to that I think would be helpful for us in our own prayer lives. And so we're going to work through those three expressions of Nehemiah in this passage. Um, before we jump into them, let's just remember what's going on in this setting, this historical period. So the, the people of Israel had their heyday, uh, you know, under the reign of King David and King Solomon. But really after that, the nation started to deteriorate, fall apart. They started turning away from the true God and they started worshiping idols. And so as God had warned them back in Deuteronomy 30, he sent them out of the land. He, he, he dismissed them. He exiled them. They were literal outcasts in the current land of Persia under Persian rule. But God was working a plan to bring his people back to them, uh, back, back to where they originally were. The people said things, as many of us have said at different points throughout the last year, I can't wait for things to get back to normal. The people just wanted to get back to normal. God did not want things to get back to normal. God wanted to do a new work in their lives. And so he starts under the leadership of Nehemiah, the opportunity for the people to be brought back to the land and to restore what had been destroyed through the exile. And what we have Nehemiah doing is he's getting ready to lead the people. He's a very practical person. He ends up being the governor of Jerusalem during that time. Uh, but he doesn't start with practicals. He starts with prayer. He sees the need of the people. They're in great trouble, great shame while they're exiled. And so step one for Nehemiah is prayer. And in his prayer are these different expressions. The first one that I want us to see is this expression of desperation. This expression of desperation. Read with me verse 5 one more time. So verse 5, he's going to begin with adoring God in the same way that Jesus begins the Lord's Prayer by focusing uh, on our Father who is in heaven. Nehemiah says in verse 5, and I said to the Lord, O God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Verse six, watch this. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel your servants. So listen to these sort of grabs for attention that Nehemiah gives here. Okay, number one, uh, he says, uh, let your ear be attentive. In other words, God, listen to me. Then he says, uh, let your ear be attentive. Then he says, let your eyes be open. In other words, God, look at me. Let your ears be attentive. Let your eyes be open to hear the prayer. If you didn't hear me the first time, God, let me say it one more time. Listen to what I'm about to say to you. Uh, and, and, and then he says that he, he does this type of prayer day and night. In other words, all day long and even into the late hours of the night, Nehemiah is here before the Lord saying, God, listen to me. Look at me. Hear my prayer. I have something that I want to express to you. Now, is Nehemiah doing what I often experience my children doing? 
when I'm in an adult, an, in an adult conversation with one of you? There are many times where I'm in an adult conversation, maybe with someone in this room, maybe, maybe someone not in this room, and what I just hear out of the corner of my ear is, Dad? And of course, my children recognize, this is you know, an, an adult conversation, what I have to say, uh, can wait a few minutes, so my children sit down, fold their hands, and just wait patiently for me to finish the conversation. No, absolutely not. What I could do here, Dad? 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 Father? Padre? William? Old man, dad, 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 like it, it keeps going until I turn to my kid and I'm sure because probably what's happening is some sort of emergency. Like, oh, this must be very important. Can you just hold on one second? Hey, what's going on? Dad, how do the weathermen know that it's going to rain before it actually rains? And I said, they actually don't. They mess that up all the time. Um, but is that, is that what Nehemiah is doing here? Is he just, just this impatient kid just trying to get God's attention? No. What you're hearing expressed through Nehemiah is a prayer of desperation. Maybe some of you have prayed this prayer before. A prayer of desperation comes when two realities meet each other. It's something that must happen. It's an urgent need, a, a very great need, but it's followed up by this second reality. You have no power to meet it on your own. A prayer of desperation comes out when there is an urgent need and there is nothing you can do about it. Something that isn't just, it'd be nice, God, if you blessed me with this. It's God, we're desperate for you. We need this to happen, but God, we're powerless. We can't do anything on our own. As uh, Nehemiah saw the people of Israel in their current state, that's the kind of prayer that it brought about. It reminds me of two types of uh, uh, times that I tried to get my wife's attention this past Tuesday. Here's the first one. Hey, Chelsea, could you pass me the buffalo sauce? Now, two realities there. Number one, I could have, if I needed to, gotten up out of my seat and gone to get it. And then the second reality, that wasn't like an urgent need. I could have lived without it. Debatable, but I probably would have been okay if I, if I wouldn't have had it. So, so it was a fairly just casual, hey, could you, could you please pass this? Just a normal ask, not, not very desperate. Well, earlier that night, before we sat down for dinner, we were gathering the children. I go up on my back porch, uh, which has no stairs on it. It just looks over the backyard. And my youngest, my two-year-old, is on uh, the trampoline that we just installed in the backyard. She's on the edge of it. Everything goes into slow motion. Have you ever experienced this before with your kid? Everything goes into slow motion. She slowly starts falling face first off the trampoline onto the ground. No, one of her legs got hooked in the trampoline. So now she is hanging upside down from the trampoline. I knew Chelsea was downstairs. So what does my expression to Chelsea sound like in that moment? Hey, Chelsea, just like the buffalo sauce, could you get... No, my kids thought like someone was being murdered in the backyard, given how, how I screamed for Chelsea in that moment. Probably some of my neighbors thought something terrible was going on as I was just getting my wife's attention. Now, she just hung for a quick second. Chelsea got her down. She was fine. She's got some good, strong joints, so it, it was no big deal. But do you hear the difference in those requests? Where is Nehemiah in this moment? He's in a place of desperation. God, if you don't move, we're lost. We're finished. We're hopeless. God, the people of Israel are in a, uh, a, a dangerous, desperate situation. And, and so you see Nehemiah respond with, God, listen to me. Look at me. Hear my prayer. And I'm not just going to pray once, God. I'm going to continue to seek you day and night for a long season until you come through and, and, and answer the prayer that I lay before you right now. 
Hey, maybe you've prayed prayers like that before in the midst of an emergency in your life, in the midst of, you know, something where you really need God's help. Can I just ask you this, though? Have you ever prayed like that for the church? Have you ever prayed like that when you look at just the the state of things? When you look at maybe the state of your own spiritual life? When you look at the state of how engaged the church is in its mission? When you look at the state of divisiveness and conflict in the church? Uh, When you look at the, the state of powerlessness and the need for God's presence? Do you ever come to a place from the depths of your soul where you're saying, God, I don't just have an emergency in your life. What I want more than anything else and what I'm gonna do day and night is seek you until you come down. I'm going to seek your face urgently and desperately because we're in an urgent and desperate situation. Can I just invite you continuously? I'll be like Nehemiah to you guys. Continuously, man, come pray with us on Wednesday nights if you're able. Come seek the face of God just like Nehemiah did in this season with a desperate need. God, we don't want to live just going through the motions. We don't want to go back to normal. We want you here in our midst so desperately and urgently we call out to you. That's the first expression that I want to observe in this passage with Nehemiah is this expression of desperation. Next, what I want us to observe is Nehemiah's confession. Now, usually I use very little notes. and this one, I want to be very clear. So I'm going to try to stay on point here, okay? Let let me just read beginning halfway through verse 6, Nehemiah's confession here, and then we'll consider it together. I now pray before you, day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. A confession that Nehemiah says here. And what we have him doing is, is confessing the sins of his forefathers and his own nation's sin. And so what I want to do is reflect with you for a moment of how I think this does not apply to us, how I think it does apply to us, okay? Uh, I would have loved to just skim past this and not deal with the controversy in it, but there's no fun in that. And so uh, let's, let's dive in and consider this together. There is, of course, if you are in any way tuned in with our kind of cultural conversation right now, a great discussion about race and the responsibility you have in the sins of your forefathers, particularly if you are of the white ethnicity. There's a lot of discussion on perhaps the responsibility or the guilt you carry Not even so much based on your own individual actions, but based on what has gone on before you. And that's largely based on the color of your skin and the the history of our country. So, uh, where do we see this showing up? There's subtle things that that maybe you've seen. Like, it's just automatically known. If you're of one particular race, then you're automatically racist. That's just, you're a part of it. There's nothing you can do about it. More explicit examples that I've seen are... Maybe you've seen these two crowds of uh, dozens, hundreds of white people on their knees with their hands lifted, confessing the sins of their forefathers uh, to the people who are non-white in the midst of that gathering. And it couldn't be 
help be struck with the irony, I was assigned this passage talking about Nehemiah's confession of his forefathers' sins on the 4th of July last week, where we discuss, where we of course celebrate the founding of our country. So, let me do to my best to express just a couple thoughts that I carry personally uh, about how I think about the country that we find ourselves in. So, on the one hand, I have extraordinary gratitude to live in this land. We experience more freedom and prosperity than perhaps any people in the history of the world. And that has come, that freedom and prosperity that we experience, it has come at unimaginable sacrifice by millions, some of whom have given their lives for us to enjoy the prosperity and the benefits that we experience as a nation. Man, I am inexpressibly grateful to be able to live here and enjoy the things that we enjoy. On the other hand, we can also say through this country's history, there have been heinous, unthinkable, and unjustifiable sins, especially against black people. We as Christians, as much as we enjoy what we have here, are like it says in Hebrews, still looking for a greater country. We are still waiting for our ultimate country to come. Now, the question comes back to, how do we relate to what has happened before us? What I want to do is read a section out of a theological paper that we put together that describes this point exactly for the sake of clarity. You can actually get this theological paper if you just email me. We can get it to you. It is our church's stance on this subject. This is what it says. We affirm repentance as a change of the mind, the heart, and the will. It involves the confession of specific sin and a change in our desire to forsake sin as individuals. It says we cannot repent for sins we've not committed. However, we believe that the sinful actions of our forefathers should not be ignored or minimized. We should renounce the sinful ways of the past that presently exist in our culture and recognize the need to repent if or when that sin issue exists. So that's out of the paper, and I'd be happy to provide for you the whole thing. So this is what it's boiling down, summarized, saying. On the one hand, we don't minimize or ignore what's happened in the past. We don't need to gloss over that. We don't minimize it. On the other, I'll just say this, contrary to what is being taught in our culture, we do not repent for sins that we have not committed. We don't. In short, if you are guilty, you are not guilty of racism simply by the virtue of your skin color. We should not feel undue pressure from our society to continually bear, bear the guilt of what happened long ago, unless, of course, those patterns are showing up in our own lives. So then what is going on here with Nehemiah that maybe sets it apart from just the current day and age? Where do we need to do some interpretive work to say, hey, here's what's kind of different from what Nehemiah is doing to what's being popularly talked about in our own day? Well, I just recognize this. Number one, Nehemiah is making his confession to God, which is in no way part of the cultural conversation that we're having right now. God is not in the midst of the conversation at all. Number two, and perhaps, perhaps most importantly, he acknowledges the sins of his forefathers but he does so also recognizing his own role in it. He says, even I in my father's house have sinned, have sinned. In other words, he wasn't carrying the weight of everything that had gone before him, even though he himself was not guilty. He says, even I and my father's house have sinned. 
And then here's another thing that I want us to observe from Nehemiah's confession. There are, in his confession, commandments, rules, statutes, specific transgressions that Nehemiah discusses. Ways in which the people could say, we did this, and it transgressed God's commands. We have to understand that God deals with us directly and specifically. Much of the talk about the sins of racism are vague involvement in systems or unconscious beliefs that you don't even know that you have. It's very slippery and hard to pin down. Nehemiah could say, here is where we have gone wrong and here is where we need to repent. And when there are specific instances of this in our lives, in our church, whether it's racism or bigotry, we need to either own that or stand against it, but that's not often a part of what's going on in the modern discussions on racism. So, as it pertains to generational sin, the connection that we have to the generations that have gone before us, I want to say the following things. Sins most certainly can be passed on generationally. It happened with Nehemiah. He says, even I and my father's house have sinned. Many of us even very simply do the things that we saw our parents do, even though we said we never would. They can be passed generationally, but that doesn't mean that they automatically are or that you are guilty for your forefathers' wrongs. Even heinous sins in our lineage, even if there are heinous sins in our lineage or in our nation, we have the ability to say, this stops with us. This, this will no longer be present in our day. And we've done our best since the founding of New City to say that, hey, this has gone on in the past, even in the church, but no longer will it be with us. So the point in short is this, that I'm trying to make this morning. No one is guilty of the sin of racism based solely on the actions of their forefathers or previous generations or simply by virtue of your skin color. I would again simply refer to you, refer you to our, our paper and the statement to think about how should we relate to what has happened before us. So that's where I think we need to be careful about how this confession applies to us. But where does it apply? Clearly, even if you can genuinely say that the racist sins of our forefathers are not present in your own life, man, I can assure you that you have your own list of sins, every last person in this room that need to be laid before the Lord, regardless of what they are. Whether it's the sin of racism, hate, envy, idolatry, lust, anger, drunkenness, dishonoring your parents, lying, or any other lack of conformity to God's will, all of us fall short of the glory of God. And we do not justify ourselves by saying, well, I'm not as racist as the culture is making me out to be, so I'm okay. Or I've uh, grown in becoming anti-racist, so I much, must be on this track record of, of doing better and better. No, we justify ourselves by saying what the song before the throne of God says, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Everybody in our society is trying to figure out, hey, how can I be on the right side of things? How can I be declared right and just and good? It can happen by no human effort of our own. None. It is done on the basis of Jesus and on the basis of what he did alone. That's what makes us right before God. So 
Don't let this con- the controversy of this passage excuse your need to repent of your own sin because we all have plenty of it. The gospel is not, we are not as bad as the culture says, so we're okay. The gospel tells us you're actually far worse than the culture says you are but we have a savior who gave his life on our behalf and through him we find redemption and forgiveness. So, setting aside how we relate to our forefathers, man, what sin in your own life do you need to repent of and lay before the Lord, not so that you can feel guilty and terrible, so that you might find redemption and forgiveness in your life? That's what Nehemiah did. That's the call on us this morning. Let's consider finally then, Having looked at Nehemiah's desperation, his confession, I want us to consider together Nehemiah's mission. Nehemiah's mission. Nehemiah begins by looking up towards God, adoring him and seeing his desperate need of him. He then looks uh, inward at himself and see his own sin and his need to repent. And then finally, he looks outward at the state of things And he prays towards God's mission. The mission that God has been working since Genesis chapter 3. Can I tell you something about God this morning? God is not sitting bored in heaven waiting for the world to end. And God is actively involved in a mission and he's been doing it since the days of Nehemiah and even long before that. What is God's mission that he's engaged in? In short, It's this, God's mission is to chase down outcasts and bring them back home to him. God's mission is to chase down outcasts and to bring them home to him. Read with me what Nehemiah says beginning in verse 9. But if you return to me and keep my commands and do them, though you're who? You're outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven. From there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Nehemiah is tapping into a prophecy that was given back in Deuteronomy chapter 30. In Deuteronomy 30, God recognized that his people would turn away from them, that they would become outcasts, but that God would have a plan to bring those outcasts back. Can I invite you to turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 30? Deuteronomy 30. I'm going to read four verses out of here. This is the promise that was given long before Nehemiah was even born. It says here, And when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. Here there are people calling this to mind. They have been driven to these other nations. And return to the Lord your God, and you and your children obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Listen to what God's going to do in verse 3. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will do what? He will gather you from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you're outcasts, are in the uttermost parts of heaven. From there, 
the Lord will gather you and from there he will take you. What is God's mission that he's been working ever since sin entered the world? He's running down after outcasts and he's bringing them back to them. It was promised that the people of Israel would turn away from God and be scattered to the nations, but God would not be done with them. He would bring them back to the place where he caused his name to dwell. And we see that beginning to happen under the leadership of Nehemiah. But can I tell you something? As significant as Nehemiah's leadership was in bringing the people of Israel back from their exile, he was just a small expression of a much truer and better gatherer of the outcasts that would come some 500 years later. Jesus steps on the scene. And have you ever read Jesus's mission statement before? You guys know how organizations have mission statements? You know, we exist to do this. Uh, You know, we are here for this purpose. Do you know Jesus has a mission statement? When I discovered it, it changed everything for me. So many of you know my story, maybe some of you don't. This particular theme hit me so hard when I was 16 years old. If you were looking for an illustration, this word outcast, what does that look like? You would have just spent five minutes with me. Oh, I understand what an outcast looks like. Man, I was strung out on Coke. I spent my whole life coming up with enough money to feed my habit. I was basically dropped out of school. I was sexually perverse. I was failing at every single area of my life. I was a disaster. I was the kind of teenagers that I think I don't know, maybe some therapists and counselors say things like this, man, there's just, there's just not a whole lot we can do. There's nothing left that we have to offer to be able to change his course. I was, by God's grace, exiled to somewhere far worse than Babylon, the panhandle of Florida. That's where I was sent as a 16-year-old. The beaches are nice, but if you go about 30 minutes north, you'll understand, okay? Um, I was exiled there and furious that my parents had sent me to this program. There was nothing to do there but read the Bible. They let you read the Bible. And so I just started flipping through it. I was reading Luke's gospel. And listen, for God to get my attention, then and even now, my attention span is very short. So he was not going to be able to reach me through like a book or even a chapter. I needed a short sentence, man. And it was Jesus's mission statement that utterly changed my life. You know what his mission statement is? Luke chapter 19, verse 10. The Son of Man. It's a title of royalty significance. It's a title that describes how high up and exalted Jesus is. The Son of Man came. He came down to do earth to, to do what? The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. When I read that word, the lost, I knew that was talking about me. That the king of glory, the one that Nehemiah adored at the beginning of this passage, he came down to find me. My outcast, miserable little life, he came down to search for me, to find me, and to save me. And when I understood that, it changed 
everything. It changed everything in my life. And I remember leaving from there and hearing these different, just as a new Christian, hearing these different expressions, you know, people used to try to sort out, hey, there's all these different religions. How do we make sense of them in a way that unifies everybody? So people would give this illustration to me about what God is like. Well, God's at the top of this mountain, and we're all trying to find him. You know, some sides of that mountain, it looks grassy and there's trees. And other sides of that mountain, it's got rocks and sand in it. And still other sides of that mountain are snowy and they have ice. And, and, and that's how it is. There's all these different religions in the world. And of course, they're different. But at the end of the day, they're all moving in the same direction. They're all seeking after God. And I thought, no. My little drug-addicted self knew that was not the God that I had come to discover. My God was not sitting on top of the mountain waiting for people like me to find him. My God came down off the mountain through the person of Jesus into the pit of misery, into the pit of sin and addiction and idolatry and hopelessness, and he found me down in that pit. That's the God that I serve, and that's the God that Nehemiah was praying to. Hey, God, there's outcasts that we long for you to gather and we as a church exist to be an instrument for God to continue to seek after people who are cast out and lost today. Amen. So in a moment, we're going to take communion that celebrates the God who gives his life for outcasts like you and me. For just a second, I want us to recognize the role we play as instruments in this process of seeking out outcasts. Because again, He's not doing it physically through his own body anymore. He's doing it through you and me. He uses us, his church, as his instruments of mercy, showing the world that we live in that is down into the pit of hopelessness what God is like. So how do we get involved in the mission that God is doing of seeking out lost outcasts today? Hey, a couple things. I've already said it once. I'm going to say it again. We pray. We pray. He didn't say, hey, the Son of Man is going to go up to heaven and you all will seek and save the lost. No, he says the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So it's his work. We just get to be his instruments, which means we have to be empowered by his presence through prayer in order to be his instruments. And so we pray, and man, just such a simple act that we're going to emphasize a lot this year. We invite. We invite the most simple act we can do, but it could make a world of difference in someone's life. Outcasts, those far away from God, have to hear the invite to come back in in order for them to encounter Jesus. And you could be that very instrument to do just that. We did this just exercise as a staff a few weeks ago. We were trying to figure out, hey, what are some of the like main reasons people come to, to visit New City? Like how, how do they find their way in here? And what we discovered, it's not because of our like, you know, uh, cutting edge social media or our, you know, incredible YouTube page. You know why people show up here? Personal invite, 99% of the time. Unless you're looking for a church, you go online and find that. But most outcasts, you're not looking for churches. Just a simple invite. Hey, would you ever want to come to church with me? Hey, some people, you know, in my community, we get together once a month. Would you, would you like to come and join us for that? Just this simple act of invitation can go so far in the work that God is doing of gathering lost outcasts back home to him. And so can I just invite you this morning, number one, to pray that you could even be God's instrument to do that. And then number two, to consider who could you invite who could you draw in, whether it be to this gathering or your dinner table? I don't know. 
But who could you invite in that's currently far from God? So we get ready to take communion. Let's consider this question. God's mission is to chase down outcasts, to bring them back home. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. How does he do it? How does he really ultimately bring us back home? He does it by trading places with us. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. I want to emphasize it again. It is no accident that when the New Testament writers describe Jesus' death, that it's described as him dying outside the city. The place where he was put to death was called Golgotha. It was basically the city's garbage dump, the place reserved for lost, hopeless, miserable outcasts the place that all of us deserve to be for our sin. Jesus comes to us and trades places. He substitutes. He says, I will go and be outcast so that through my death, through my life, my resurrection, you outcasts can be brought in. So as you take communion this morning, remember that you who were once outside, cut off, cast out, have been brought back in because Jesus traded places with you. Jesus gave his body. Jesus poured out his blood so that you could be brought back home. You can come forward down the middle aisles. What Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you. Just a way of reminder, we have both wine and juice, okay? Some of y'all were shocked a couple weeks ago when you uh, were surprised by your communion cup. We used to do that. The little snack packs that we had didn't have wine in them, but we offer both, whichever you'd prefer, you can take. If you're a gathered outcast who has come back home through putting your faith in Jesus, come on forward and take communion. But hey, listen, if you're here this morning, you've been far from God. You've been far from God. You've not yet put your hope fully in him just want to encourage you, don't yet take communion. Come back to God first, and then maybe next week you can focus on communion. This meal symbolizes those who have said, I was far, I was lost, I was in my sin, but Jesus saved me, and this meal tangibly demonstrates that. But if you can't say that, if you can't say that you have turned back to God and believed for yourself what Jesus has done, then please don't take this meal, but do hear this invitation from God himself to come back home to him. The door to a relationship with the God of the universe is wide open this morning because of what Jesus did on your behalf. If you would say, even in your seat where you sit this morning, Jesus, I believe I'm lost. I have more sin than I could even begin to confess here. But you died in my place for all of it. And you rose from the grave to give me a new life. If you believe that this morning, then you have made your way from being an outcast to now being a child of the living God. So if you're going to take communion, come on forward when you're ready. Let me pray and uh, you can do just that. God, where, were we, where would we be if you were not the type of God that comes down off that mountain, off your exalted position, and saved us. Where would we be without you? God, I pray this morning as we take these elements, we would remember you traded places with us. You were cast outside the city. We were brought in to God's family. Here we stand 
citizens of your kingdom, residents of your better nation that is yet to come, and sons and daughters around your dinner table that we celebrate through this meal. Here we are because Jesus traded places with us. Maybe, Lord, there's some here who've been far away, outcasts in this room. Oh, God, would they hear your voice to come on back this morning. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.